Welcome to the Testing Habits Podcast. This is Edward Denoyo. Today I'll be speaking with Serge Demeyer, professor at the University of Antwerp, the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science. He's the spokesperson of the ANSIMO Antwerp System Modeling Research Group. Uh, he directs a research lab investigating the team of software reengineering, lower lab on reengineering. We'll talk a little bit about software evolution, software testing, test automation, education, and many other topics. Serge knows a lot about many things, as you'll hear in this conversation. I love talking to Serge, and I hope you enjoy the ground we cover. So, Serge, welcome. Uh, Thanks for being here. How did you start your career in research? I'm really interested in to know more about what made you, you know, go on this uh, path. Now, uh, yeah, I, I graduated in Brussels, in the Brussels Free University. And in the beginning, for me, it wasn't about research. It was about teaching. I wanted to be involved in, in yeah, talking to young students. Back then, we were starting with the whole scheme as a new programming language. And that what threw me into academia. And then I did my military service, and then the professor asked me to come back. And then that was the time when I actually said, like, okay, perhaps I should do a PhD. And we were participating in this project with uh, some bunch of sociologists on how to use hypermedia to do collaborative work. And so, yeah, that was really what made me trigger for research, this whole yeah, computer-supported collaborative work. And, and that's since then ever. Eh? For me, it's not software. It's, it's to serve mankind. And that's still what I want to do. Yeah, so you 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 graduated from uh, uh, Brussels University? Yeah. How, how, how is that? <laughs> how is Brussels University? <laughs> Why? Ah, how, uh, yeah. Brussels is a, a bilingual city. And mm. so there's a French-speaking part and a Dutch-speaking port, and so yeah. I was part of the, the Dutch-speaking port, and that was on a, a nice little campus close to the, the police offices. Yeah. So yeah, I remember when, as a student, you sometimes work in a little bit uh, toxic uh, circumstances across the campus, and then you, you come across police officers, but yeah, they usually keep very quiet against the students. But yeah, yeah. that was a, a nice period of my life. Yeah, and what what did you like the most about that, like, period where you, I guess, started to learn about computer science and maybe engineering. Was was it, that uh, something that, you know, attracted you? Yes, I was already in middle school working with the, the first Apple IIs. And so computers was something like, wow, this this opens up a new horizon. And, and my, my parents were very sceptic about that because they said like, you know, these weird machines who can calculate. And then I came to the university and it really opened my eyes to all the possibilities that could be. Uh, back then, we still had to program on, on these typewriter things with green, uh, black screens with green letters, only 40, 80 characters, that type of stuff. There were even some punching machines then. But yeah, we quickly adopted graphical interfaces, Macintoshes in the beginning. Uh, so yeah, that, that what really opened my eyes. Yeah, and it, it's interesting to to hear that. And uh, I, but I guess it's a long way from there to you know going into research. And I guess that came sometime when you were 
I guess, after you graduated or was it before? No, no, it was after I graduated. It so was after. I, I first did a year of teaching, then a military service, and it was only after that that, yeah, research and PhD research in particular was kind of, of my thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just curious about this aspect because I'm I'm talking with people from 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 di with different backgrounds, and I I I always try to ask them also about what they did research in the beginning. What what was the subject they actually started with? Yeah, so it was yeah we had a project together with sociologists, and it was really about making decisions in group. And so there was this kind of special voting mechanism to avoid that people with authority would kind of hijack the group. And so we actually had, and that was in the early days eh, when uh, graphical user interfaces and so on were not that thing. So HyperCourt was still there. So we used HyperCourt as a way to stimulate and allow people to discuss online. On, on, yeah, that was before Zoom and, and Teams and so on existed. Eh? So that was the, the early days. And yeah, this that that was what what throw me into it yeah and I, it's interesting to say that and i guess um not too many people were doing research about these aspects or um, or have you found many oh many yeah colleagues that's there? not true huh? um okay. I, I in brussels it was a, a programming languages lab so we were investigating novel ways of programming the early days of, of objects and things like that but back then i went to the hypertext conferences and the computer supported cooperative work conferences. And so there are already late 80s conferences regarding that. So you started early and I guess, uh, um, and I guess now nowadays when you, I guess when you see more and more researchers doing, I guess, um, research in social aspects of computer science, software yeah. engineering, I guess that brings you joy. Yeah, yeah, say. sure. Yeah. sure. It was also an interesting time yeah, because back then the internet did not yet exist and so we actually had to go to the library to to worry and, and borrow proceedings eh? so yeah if you if you wanted to know about the related work you actually had to wait six weeks before a paper arrived on your desk eh? and that's that's amazing yeah it is amazing. So yeah. Back then, when you wrote, to the best of our knowledge, we are the first doing that. That was yeah. really true, eh? because yeah, you didn't have Google to, to help you in, in doing that. No, you had to go to the library to actually to the library, yeah. Yeah. And then microfilm yeah. still. Eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, can, I, I want to say here that I, I'm, I read some of your papers before I met you. Um, and I, I know that, um, yeah, I got uh, inspired by, by some of your work and uh, I'm sure others have done also. Um, and uh, after I met you, and I think I, I met you also in a research project in a meeting, and um, I, 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 I remember seeing a book called Object Oriented Reengineering Patterns Book. Um, and then I, it clicked. Oh, that you're the one of the authors of that book and i uh, i it's amazing how um, how how small the world is especially in research so i i was just curious how did this book come about it's uh, it was such, it is such a popular book i guess Still. that's uh, yeah you know you really go go back in time eh? so <laughs> after i i finished my phd in in brussels 
I had an opportunity to go to a European project uh, in Switzerland. And that was with, with Nokia and Daimler-Benz. And they had this huge piles of legacy code in C++ and ADA. And they wanted to refactor it. And I was there as a, as a postdoc. That was my first experience with a European project. So we had to, to fly to Helsinki in, in, in cold winter times. And, and, and yeah, there was also a Spanish partner involved. So yeah, also in, in summer going to Spain. So yeah, that also was an, an interesting aspect. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we were working on this on these uh, legacy systems, and yeah, back then that didn't go well into into research papers. Eh? So we actually submitted papers, and reviewers told us yeah, there is no such thing as an object-oriented legacy systems. No, we we knew that was not true eh? because we had actually industrial people, uh, yeah, suffering from from legacy systems. But yeah, we were there to 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 help them. And so, yeah, one of these deliverables of that uh, project was a handbook, which we wrote together with uh, a team in, in Karlsruhe. And uh, Martin Fowler then had his, his refactoring book out. And so we said, like, yeah, this looks interesting, but, but we, we wanted to go uh, yeah, a little bit higher level, uh, so, so next level. And then that was also the time when the design patterns book was there. And so we said, like, let's do something re-engineering patterns. And yeah, we started to, to scribble a few things and there existed the, the Europlop series of pattern language conferences. So that was, yeah, compared to other conferences, something weird. They had to go someplace in, in Germany in some, some castle, something like that. And then you sit together, you play games to, to, to exercise the left part of your brain. And then you actually have the, the pattern writing workshops with to, to, to do the right part of your brain. But yeah, it helped us in really in, in writing these patterns to something which was helpful for practitioners. Yeah. And so that's how this book came out. So we had the handbook from the European project. We completely rewrote it. And then we actually submitted it to a publisher. And then it was reviewed in several times. And then, yeah, it was already back in Antwerp then before it finally got published. But so, yeah, that was interesting. And then... Uh, we got several good reviews and remarks from that, from people actually using it, but it didn't sell so well. Okay. So after a while, uh, Morgan Kaufman, the, the publisher, told us, like, yeah, they will not sell it anymore. And then we asked if it put okay to, to get the copyright back. And okay. then we did. And now we have an, an, a free version available on the web for everybody who wants it. And I still get occasional emails from people saying like that it helps even now. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Uh, I will. I will actually put also the link in the in the in the notes so yeah. people can can check it. Yeah, it's. Um, I was just wondering how how is it to write a book? I guess you wrote this this book, and I've seen also a book on um, software evolution. Evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So, is it fun to write a book? <laughs> on 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 engineering or software engineering um, no, or re-engineering and writing a book on software testing so is it fun once it's done it's fun uh, but the moment you're writing it yeah it, it's it's hard work um and yeah back then there was no such thing as git or something or overleaf so we actually had to to email back and forth files with uh, the content eh? 
Um, but once you have the first draft available and, and reviewers are reviewing it, and then uh, especially with Morgan Kaufman, there was copy editors going over our language and, and helping us doing that. Also the layouting of the book, that was, that was fun. And then I also saw the other side of producing a book and how, yeah, how engineering wise that, that goes eh, into, into all kind of stuff. So they actually copy edit with manual annotations on the paper. Uh, on, on things that should be changed. Eh? This goes to the font level. So. Very interesting. One interesting part was also that we wanted to have a CD with our book. Okay. Yeah. And then we contacted the publisher uh, and yeah, like, why do you want to have a, a CD? Yeah, because there are lots of tools available on the web and we would like to put them uh, on the CD. Mm. And then they told us, yeah, you know, a CD if we need to, to burn a CD, we need to immediately burn 1,000 copies of it because we do that in one batch. But for a book, that doesn't happen. So for a book, they publish in, in small batches. Yeah. And they actually change little things between the batches. Eh? So there's, there's typos and things like that. They do, eh? So the whole production of a book, if you see it from the other side, is, is really yeah, quite different than, than what you would expect. Oh yeah, I learned I learned a lot from that. You learned a lot. Yeah, that's 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 useful. Um and and I guess it's still important this topic. I mean the reverse engineering of legacy systems. This is something that has been um it's it's very important. Oh yes, yes, yes. And I now do lots of work with uh cyber physical systems and, and companies mm -hmm. thereon. And yeah, they still struggle with that. Huh? Yeah. I was wondering, how did you switch from software re-engineering to, you know, software testing? I, I know you from at least my, I know you from that from that side of uh, of of, of uh, software engineering and research. Um, ah, uh, yeah. Well, th that that's quite a natural step. Eh? So we were doing all this work with uh, Nokia and Daimler Benz, and about refactoring and things like that. And the point was that they don't. They do know how to refactor, but what's mainly was preventing them is that they didn't have these automatic regression tests that you need to refactor. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that was also in the book very prominent. You need automated tests. And that was the beginning when there was a, the open source testing framework, Smalltalk unit testing. That was the first, and then Java, JUnit, and, and then a few others. And we quickly jumped on that pattern. And so for me, it was clear like, yeah, Test and, and tests, uh, automated tests also need to be refactored because before you know, you have thousands of them with clones in between them. We do lots of work on clones in normal code, but we also then did work on clones in, in test code and things like that. And then how, how can you refactor and maintain your test code? So so that's how it came. And so yeah. I'm, I'm done to research in software testing. Eh? I'm to research in automated tests and the code that goes along with it and how to make that code clean and healthy. And, that's, it's interesting that you're mentioning this, you know, the difference between testing and test automation. Do you do you see as um, are there any aspects of testing? Um, the, the, I, do you see that is I guess test automation comes with something very important, um, and you're trying to automate some parts of the testing process that make. Um, 
that bring maybe more efficiency, more I guess effectiveness in the in the process. But are, is this the, why do you make this differentiation between you know I do research in test automation right? uh, and and uh, because I guess test automation can influence other parts. I guess a, a tester will do also manual testing and um, implement automated tests. I guess it's uh, what I want to get into is that uh, is there a, a significant difference in between these you know areas? I think so. Yes. Yeah. If you do research on testing, it's really about the last five percent of the bugs that you know about. But if you do on test automation, especially from from my evolution perspective, it's it's about regression testing and making sure that nothing breaks. And so your tests don't need to cover 100%. They cover well enough that you notice where it starts breaking. That, that's good enough. Yeah. Interesting. That's why the automation is so important, because it's uh, you need to run this several times. Eh? And back then, we had things like every quarter a new release. But now people on Git commit every five minutes or so. Eh? And so then you need to make sure that if you commit, that you don't, don't break anything. Yeah, and um, are there any, I mean, specific research that you would like you 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 think um, are the most uh, interesting? Uh, you know, in 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 test automation, um, you mentioned the maintaining large test suits, but I, I was wondering if there if there are other things that you think are you know important. Well, yeah, recently. Uh, I'm on a mission, and you know that, uh, with mutation testing. Eh? So yeah. this is now my, my new uh, pet topic, uh, where I actually yeah, want to explain to people how important it is. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I started this with a research paper where we actually were changing things and we wanted to see whether the tests were good enough. And then we measured line coverage and things like that. And then a PhD student of mine came along like, yeah, but you know, there exists mutation testing and that's even better. And so an academic started to read upon that and an academic circles, yeah, mutation testing is, is the, the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, especially if, but then if you, I have lots of industrial contacts and it was clear like, yeah, but that's very expensive and this takes too much time and, and things like that. And then we got in contact in Sweden with, with SAP where they had this tool on, on C++ mutation testing with Klang. And he also had some contacts with people in the C++ community. So I said, yeah, it would be really good if you would have a C++ mutation testing tool. So we helped a bit there. We also deployed it in actual industrial circumstances and uh, on, on components where the, the team was thinking this is really well tested. Eh? We have yeah. over 90% line and statement coverage. Yeah. And then we did the mutation testing and we still could find weaknesses. And that was interesting because, yeah, well, that's kind of expected. But then if you then actually start to talk to the, the testers, they go next level again, eh? because for them, it's not about having 100% coverage, but it's also about how can I design my test architecture so that it's easier to test. And this mutation testing also gives hints there. And yeah, that's what now for me, the, the mission again is how you can use mutation testing to actually improve 
the maintainability of the tests. Uh, mm. It's a way to, yeah, it's it's more than just finding weaknesses in, in the, the test. It's also about, yeah, the, the design principles that, that, that go along with it. Yeah, and maybe for the for our listeners that are that don't know mutation testing, um, maybe we can we can just <laughs> tell them that mutation testing, I guess it's used to create new test cases, but also to evaluate how good your test cases are, the quality of existing tests. But maybe you can tell it in a better in a better way. The way um, yeah. I try to explain it is uh, when you go to the airport, you need to go to the security gate. Yeah, and they put your back on this camera and, and they, they have x-rays to see whether there's any uh, revolvers or something like that in it. And what happens is, if you want to test the security people, what they do is they artificially inject revolvers and other and, uh, bad items into the, into the image of the suitcase to see whether the, the the security people actually catch it. And that's what mutation testing is about. Huh? So you have your system under test and you have your tests. You inject artificially faults in your system under tests. And then you see whether the tests actually catch it or not. And if they don't, you know that's a bad sign. Huh? That's something where you should improve. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, very interesting, a very good way to 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 put it. I, I really like it. I I might use it, but I will uh, for sure mention your name. <laughs> I have a slide somewhere where, where uh, that I can share with you too. Oh, that would be that would be that would be great. I'm I'm wondering maybe if we go into the nitty gritty part of the of of mutation testing. Do you have any opinions about you know the the um, the experimental, but also the the theoretical aspects? that underpin mutation analysis and mutation testing. Um, for example, the coupling effect. Um, and is that something you think about? And I don't know if, if you have any opinions. I do have opinions. Eh? So <laughs> uh, the coupling effect is uh, if you have a, that the, if you have a small error that it should be find out by, by the tester. And okay. so, yeah, that's again what I said. Eh? For me, it's not about being 100%. It's about are your tests good enough to catch the things that matter. Uh, and so in that sense, yeah. mutation testing helps. Yeah. Uh, we are currently uh, doing mutation testing on, on MATLAB simulink models yeah. with people in, in, in the modeling community. And that is not anymore about all possible faults you can inject. Yeah. But you really want to inject the faults that matter. And so we have one little Lego robot where we have the wheels and then we start reducing the wheel and reducing the wheel a little bit more and reducing a little bit even more to see when it's not possible anymore for the robot to follow a line. Yeah. That's the kind of mutants we want to inject also in, in, in real systems. Eh? And, and yeah. that's nothing we're currently working on. And more realistic and more, um, you, I mean, more yeah, more realistic uh, mutants you use, the the better results you have, I guess. That's the hope, but then yeah, for the moment we don't know that yet. Eh? No, no, yeah. Um, I I really like the discussion. I, I think I, we can go <laughs> on and on about mutation <laughs> Probably, yeah. testing. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. 
Um, but since we discussed about industry and how it, your current mission is to you know promote to some extent mutation testing and you would like the industry to know more about it and use it uh, and and I know that in industry you always find people that have you know what we call preconceptions biases they look at they have some preconceived views about some aspects of software engineering um, what is in your opinion one you know one common myth that you would like to debunk about software engineering um yeah I, i'm not really that happy with the the whole negative aspect of the the metaphor of software engineering in the sense that it's it looks like yeah we're not proud of ourselves huh? because all other engineering disciplines deliver on time within budgets without faults that's not true huh? i had people here doing work in my kitchen they also screw up they also go over time over budgets and they also make mistakes huh? so it's not true that other engineering disciplines do better and on top of that i think we can actually teach them to become better because if you see this whole agile way of working this whole scrum this whole agile manifesto the way we do engineer projects now is some place where we can educate other engineering disciplines on how to do really exploratory design and and, and, and deal with novel things and and then especially if you now look the way we we develop code on the internet on sourceforge on git where we share code, where we share all the changes in the code. So there's actually full traceability of what happens in the project. This is unprecedented. Eh? So from an engineering perspective, this is something we can also show to, to other engineering disciplines. This is the way you can share your work, work in, in a digital environment right now. And so for me, uh, the software engineering metaphor, it's not anymore about we're so small and they're so big it's the other way around we're the best and they should learn from us that's that's uh, yeah. and that's actually also what you see happening now we work together with a, a few people in, the, in the, the train the railway and they start to adopt agile and yeah, slowly you see like ah there's another way of of building trains also in an agile way and you you think also that they're not exposed in a way to this um to this knowledge yeah um is it because i guess they they follow certain standards and they just they they already know so many things they don't really need it has to, to do with standards but not a lot i think i guess okay. from what i see is that they trained and they do electrical design and mechanical design and they trained in first to design and then deploy it and then experiment it because this whole design is the place which is costly and software engineers the design is not the costly part huh? it's the, the mistakes part that's costly <laughs> and so we we actually had once an experiment where we doing refactorings with students from the industrial engineers and the way they they write code is they write hundreds lines of code at max huh? and so then if you talk to them about Changing something in the code, yeah, that's easier if it's only 100 lines. But our students must contribute to open source projects of millions lines of code. And then there's all of a sudden this 
completely changes the scale of how you think about the code. For the most mechanical and electrical engineers, code is a little byproduct of the real thing. But that's not true anymore. Code is uh, by far the, the biggest in terms of, of size in, in, in new, new devices, new airplanes, new drones, new trains, new cars. It, it's amazing um, to hear you speak about this. I'm, I, I, I think more people should know about this. And I, I work with people in industry in the railway domain, and I, I wish they would uh, to be exposed to these ideas more and more. That's, that's why I do um, this, this, uh, this podcast. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I will make sure that as many people as possible hear about this. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people that are not only people that are experienced and working in industry, but um, and have a lot of experience, but people that just start their careers in in software engineering and software testing. And I was wondering, um, what's what's one thing you uh, wish you had known when you began the career? Uh, when you began your career, is it only is it it, there are two perspectives here is the research perspective but also the practitioner perspective what i'm interested in both um what uh, what uh, the things that you you wish yeah. you had known uh, for, for the research perspectives it's uh yeah research method research philosophy so i i was really not drawn into into academia because of the research it was only then we started to write our first papers and then we yeah we built a prototype and we tried it out, and it took me ten years to actually understand that there's a scientific process after that, uh, case studies and and, and and little things like that. And it was only in in two thousand and nine that I when I was on a sabbatical that I actually started to read on these research methods. I created a tutorial. I still give that tutorial occasionally. So. Yeah, that's one of the things that I wish I had known when I actually started doing research, especially when I had my first PhD students, because I couldn't really explain them how to, to write and, and report uh, properly about that. Um, about the practitioner side of things, I'm not really sure. Uh, when I started my research, it was on hypermedia, and it was always with the social perspective. And so in that sense, I always had an, an open eye for what society needed. And so in the beginning, that wasn't really helpful for my career because I was considered uh, too applied as research. But uh, yeah, it, it always helped me yeah, because for me, yeah, I don't do research for the sake of research. It's for me to help other people and yeah, to, to be open-minded. And so that's something I was from the beginning on, and that's also something I wish... Uh, Every new researcher should should take that stance. Eh? You need to be open to the questions that come from society. And now we have chat CPT and all these kind of things. So there's a world of opportunities going there. But we should <laughs> listen to the people actually using the software. Yeah, yeah. I, I it, it, since you mentioned chat GPT, I was I, I will take the opportunity to ask you about it. Um, is it? I guess you you we nowadays we hear about it. Um, and about the use of ChatGPT in both in education, in, uh, um, in, in even in practice, um, and there are engineers that use it as a, as, a, as a search engine. Do you have any opinions on it? On the use of ChatGPT for, you know? I once 
in had. engineering or teach or as students. You know, I supervised a PhD in arts once. And he created notebooks, which was this kind of fancy way of drawing, uh, yeah, drawing on the screen. And for him, notebooks was the same as a, a pencil or a painter. And so for me, ChatGPT is no more than a pencil for a paper. It's a tool. And so it's not true that if you say like ChatGPT, write something and it will destroy the creative process. No, that's not true. When painters had new ways of painting, they got better or yeah, they, they produced different art. And so if we start to use ChatGPT for art and creative processes, we will create different things. Will they be better? I'm not sure, but will they be different? That's for sure. Mm. Same for engineering. I mean, we we had Stack Overflow, we had Google, now we'll have ChatGPT. This will help us. Will it be better or worse? I'm not sure, but I think, yeah, we as humans are very flexible and very adaptable, so so we will cope. Yeah, and I guess all the... the no? Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. It will change the profession. Uh, and, yeah, especially for testing, yeah, I do a little bit work on, on generating tests. Mm. So, yeah, it's clear, eh? if you start to generate mutants based on ChatGPT, what, what will go out? I don't know, but it's, it's, it's would be fun to try. Eh? That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it opens up uh, a lot of possibilities, and I'm I'm sure... This will be very, very, very exciting. Um, and I maybe this is a good segue also to to uh, a question that I have regarding the advice do you have that you have for um, students getting started in software testing today. So what would you like to you know to to tell to students getting started with software testing? Uh, master students or PhD students? That's a good question. Maybe we should do both. Let's start with master students, but maybe we should start with bachelor students and master students and PhD students afterwards. Maybe that. Uh, for, for bachelor students, don't trust the computer. Because that's really, yeah, but I already teach how to test software from first year. I also taught how to use software for biologists and things like that and it's clear eh? early people just think that the computer is always right and so that's something get that out of your system computers make mistakes too so you should test what they produce so that's for bachelor and then for master students if they're really into software engineering for me it's about yeah we teach them now to test software and they write JUnit tests and the like and they think that everything is a JUnit test and everything should be automated. And I think that's only partially true. Because if you automate the tests, you kind of test for the, the known problems. But the actual problems are not the places where you have tests for it, eh? where you don't have tests for it. Their manual testing mm. is probably better. I once had a, a guest lecture from somebody from an industrial company producing screens. And the way they tested it was that they just produced a signal so that all screens would com be completely red. And then they had an automatic system taking a picture of 100 screens. 
and then it was one human looking at the screen and he could immediately see when all the screens will be red or not. Uh, if you could automate that, but by the time you automated that, you would have spent so much engineering things and yeah, it takes five seconds for a human to do that. So, so yeah, that would be my advice to master students is uh, don't don't go overboard in in automating yeah that's good advice very good advice well how about yeah now i'm like thinking about since you mentioned also the difference between students how about phd students the phd students also start in software you know they do a phd in software testing and then most likely a lot of them will go into industry mm-hmm. yeah what do you have any advice for those students if you look into research and tooling and the like, it's often about precision and recall and and things like that. And that's not really what's needed by industry in my experience. So advice to PhD students, please don't actually try your tools with real practitioners. Precision and recall is when it's good enough for the practitioners, but what really matters is whether it actually helps them in taking decisions. Yeah. So yeah, there's lots of research now on machine learning for all kinds of software engineering problems. And yeah, we did work on, on bug triaging and, and, and things like that. Uh, and we actually tried it out with, with real debuggers. And for them, it's not about how precise it is in, in, in predicting things, but can it actually explain why it makes a certain recommendation and so that's far more important than the precision and recall and so for me these students test it out with real people you will be amazed about the kind of feedback you get on your tools i am glad to hear that and then for yeah the people actually going to industry yeah keep that in mind because the next generation of phd students will come to you to do experiments so be open and be helpful to them (laughs) <laughs> that's a good way to to put it um we talked i mean i'm 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 just wondering about what what you think now it's a question that just came to mind um what do you think about the state of you know current state of academic software testing education um maybe you can talk about of course you can talk about your university uh, the country, but also Europe or worldwide. I don't know what, which perspective, but are there any you know observations that you would like to make and so, some things that could be improved in your opinion? Um, I know I, I don't put really you on have spot. a good perspective on on the state of the the practice in in education. I only have anecdotal evidence from what I hear. Mm. Yeah. In our university, and that's mainly because uh, I'm there, in the first year, we teach them how to test the software. And what you see happening, especially now with Git and and, and all these kind of things, that they adopt it easier because it's it's a natural way of doing it when you do it on Git. So in that sense, if you do projects, software testing comes out automatically, I think. But I had anecdotal evidence from other departments, and especially some recently, some postdoc came along, and he said, "Like, no, no, we only teach them how to test in, in the master." And yeah. that's way too late, huh? This is a very interesting point you're making, and 
I'm, I'm, we, I have a colleague, a colleague of mine, uh, Ayadele Barrett, she's studying um, um, testing education. So she's, that's what she's doing the postdoc on, on how to improve testing education. And she looked at testing courses in Sweden and she saw exactly what you're mentioning that I think we, we, the, uh, at the undergraduate level, they do not offer individual courses on testing. Or even they don't, you cannot find even modules on testing. So testing comes up later, later on. And um, also the software testing courses are just a small part. I think she looked at, she said something about 5% of the total degree credits are in software verification and validation, which for me seems so little. Yeah. And that, yeah, maybe that's why it came to mind. But I think it's 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 interesting when you said it. It, it yeah. yeah, I think it might be something there. <laughs> but uh, whether at undergraduate level it should be a separate course, I'm not that sure about that. Because mm -hmm. for me, testing is a natural part of any project you do. And so almost all computer sciences degrees have some form of testing. And so there it should be like, if you do a project, there's our test, because otherwise it's not a project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So, Serge, I think uh, I'm um, I'm very happy that uh, I could uh, have you on on Testing Habits podcast. Um, I it was a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, I'm I'm more inspired now than I was before. Which ah. that says a lot, yeah, says a lot. And I was just wondering if you have anything to say to to the listeners. Where can they find you? Is there anything that you're doing right now, and they should check it out? I don't know. And is there a way to get in contact with you? That's ah, yeah, that's I'm very open. So I'm on email. I'm still on Twitter, uh, but okay. yeah, reach out to me, and I'm always open to discuss. Things not only software testing, software evolution, but also yeah, the general yeah, importance of software in the digital world. So yeah, reach out to me. Great. Thank you, Serge. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me and for having this. <laughs>